Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. On Commons People this week, Theresa May scores a rare Brexit win. The eyes to the right, 317. The nose to the left, 301. So the eyes have it. The eyes have it. But how long can the fragile Tory truce last? The withdrawal agreement remains the best and only deal possible. The European Union said so in November. We said so in December. We said so after the first meaningful vote in the Commons in January. The debate and votes in the House of Commons yesterday do not change that. The withdrawal agreement will not be renegotiated. And could Labour MPs offer a way forward? We have to start compromising and we have to start dropping some of the red lines that are stopping us from getting to a deal or we will, by default, end up with no deal. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh. It's been another big week in Westminster as Theresa May somehow united the Tories to keep her Brexit plan alive. Joining me to make sense of it all is Paul Wall. Hi there, Arj. Hi, Paul. Also with us is Liberal Democrat, former Cabinet Minister, Alistair Carmichael. Hi there. Hi, Alistair. And we have a second guest this week, Maddie Timont-Jack, who is a researcher in the Institute for Government's Brexit team. Hello, thanks for having me. Hi, Maddie. So the Prime Minister somehow managed to stitch together a Commons majority for her Brexit Plan B, which is to secure major changes to the dreaded Irish backstop, and a potential Plan C emerged called the Malthouse Compromise. We're now going to hear from Theresa May telling MPs she believes she can get a substantial majority for her Brexit deal. What has been absolutely clear with my contacts with European Union leaders is that they want a deal. What this House voted for last night is to leave the European Union with a deal. But it also crucially showed what it will take to uh, see a support in this House for, uh, for a deal in the future. I think the plan that was set out last night uh, shows that we can obtain a substantial and uh, a sustainable majority in this House. So, Paul, has it been a good week for the PM or has she boxed herself in? Well, how could you define it as a good week when a, a Prime Minister manages to squeak home with the sort of majority that she should be delivering as naturally as, as if she was, you know, as if she just won? Because don't forget, the DUP, the whole point of that confidence and supply deal was to deliver a regular stable majority and everyone's saying somehow it's a brilliant week because she's managed to get a, a, a majority of 16 for a backbench amendment um yeah it's a good week in the sense that she's in number 10 for another two weeks but actually uh, the kid question is is she a prisoner of her party or is she leading her party and you've got to say she looks like a sort of prisoner of political conscience not not in the traditional sense, you know, um, but in the sense that she's she's the conscience, the, the conscience of the Tory party and the Brexit movement is the ERG, and she's their prisoner. Just as John Prescott was always famously the conscience of the Labour Party, it, the ERG set themselves up as being the conscience of the Tories. They're, they're the, the true believers that, you know, they're in touch with all those 70 million Leave voters. Theresa May would never 
really was on their side and they're keeping her honest that's their whole approach but it's obvious that they're the ones doing the leading and not the PM and I think that's a tricky position to be in and Alistair she had to do some pretty extraordinary things to kind of get that Graham Brady amendment backed uh, absolutely. I mean, yes, she, she survives for another fortnight, uh, but she does it at quite a cost. That is to say, she has surrendered a heart and soul. I know, having listened to Paul, I have an image of Jacob Rees-Mogg sitting on her <laughs> shoulder like some sort of very well-tailored Jiminy Cricket sort of <laughs> figure. Um, but, you know, that's, she's sold out in order to win. Uh, and frankly, that never lasts in politics. It was a good week for the Prime Minister in one regard, and it was that basically it was a dreadful week for the Labour Party. The splits within the Labour Party are now there for all to see. She had 14 Labour MPs in the lobby with her. They are now working very closely and systematically with the Conservative whips in the House of Commons. They are briefing the media as a group. Uh, it's difficult to see what really unites them apart from Brexit, but they are working now as a team, and it seems it's a team that's not part of, of the Labour Party. So in as much as for a Conservative MP to be supported by people like Dennis Skinner and, and John Mann can be said to be a good <laughs> thing, it's been a good week for the Prime Minister in that regard. Uh, well, it sort of brings me on to something else I wanted to ask you, which is during the votes on Tuesday night, we saw the Chief Whip Julian Smith making a bit of a show of cajoling Justin Greening to vote with the government. Um, but she was quite unimpressed and, and told him yeah. that, that he's rubbish. Um, as a former Deputy <laughs> Chief Whip, do you agree? Well, look, there are some... Com- being a Chief Whip or, or Deputy Chief Whip or whatever, you have to have difficult conversations with your colleagues. If you're sensible, you don't do that in full public view. Certainly not when there are journalists around and probably not when there are even other MPs around because other MPs are almost inevitably going to talk to journalists and word gets out... Um, so, you know, Luke, one of the difficulties that the government has at the moment is that their whipping operation isn't working in the way that it ought to. It's not effective. Um, they are, they've got the psychology all wrong. You know, the, the way in which they engage with their own backbenchers is often counterproductive. It certainly doesn't bring in results. And the incident with Justine Greening was just one very good example of that. There are just too many people in government at the moment who think they know about whipping because they once read Michael Dobbs's book, The House of Cards, you know, uh, and a uh, Let's not forget, magnificent piece of fiction, though it is, is exactly that. It's not an instruction manual. Um, now, Maddie, one of the things that Theresa May kind of had to do to get people on side was um, tell her MPs that she'd take um, the Malthouse compromise seriously. Um, now, apart from being a great title for a bad spy thriller, what is it and is it workable? Yeah, well, so the Malthouse Compromise, also known as Plan C, contains two plans. So Plan A and Plan B, which equals Plan C. Um, Plan A is about trying to find an alternative to the backstop that is currently drafted in the withdrawal agreement. So, for example, they're, they're sort of relying on a paper put out by the ERG before Christmas which is looking at looking for, trying to um, get the EU to agree to mutual recognition in standards without being part of the single market, but also try and ensure that customs checks, for example, can be done away from the border and sort of facilitate the, um, the passage of goods acro- across the border in, in Northern Ireland. And again, 
before Christmas, well, not before Christmas, last summer, there was a lot of discussion about technological solutions to the border. Mm-hmm. So MaxFAC was um, floated as one opportunity, and it seems like MaxFAC is sort of rising from the dead, essentially, <laughs> in, in, the, in, the, in the content of this um, proposal. And then Plan B is if, if the... Uh, EU does not agree to that is essentially to say we'll say to the EU we'll give you money for you know we'll pay our obligations for a year or two and you can give us a transition till 2021 and in that time we can prepare ourselves for no deal where we can then return to trading on WTO terms so that's sort of the two aspects of the plan. Yeah, my son, who's a computer scientist, 21 years old, was watching this part of the debate and phoned me. He just had to vent. And essentially, I paraphrased slightly, but he said, here's a group of old men who can't even make their smartphone work talking about technology <laughs> that has not even been invented yet. You know, uh, uh, the, 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 in, the infinite number of ways in which we try to get round otherwise insuperable problems on one view is entertaining, but, it, you know, it would be entertaining if we weren't just six weeks from a, the hardest possible Brexit. Uh, and really, if that was a serious option, we would know about it by now. But really, it's just people looking for another few ro- yards of road that they can kick the can down. And what's interesting about this so-called Malthouse Compromise, the most interesting thing about it, is not its content, but the number of people from different wings of the Tory party that were yeah. prepared to sign up to it. They're so desperate for something, anything they can unite around. You get people like Nicky Morgan, of all people, yeah. agreeing to this. Um, now, you can understand why the ERG like it. Obviously, they've, they've stuck to their guns. They've said this for ages. David Davis has talked about maximum facilitation, the MaxFact plan for ages. But what has baffled some Remainers in Cabinet is that some of their colleagues that they thought were fellow travellers on this and were sensible are actually signing up to what they think is yet another you know um, unicorn in the grand national towards Brexit but the, the, the curious <laughs> thing and the really curious thing is that actually number 10 didn't seem to be totally aware of it it genuinely was under the radar and it was done one on one and um, as a result maybe that's why it's got a bit more legitimacy but at the same time it's not really got any credibility with the EU, yeah. let alone people in the cabinet. I mean, remember the cabinet said to me this week privately, it's pure nonsense. Yeah. Um, and this is someone who thought that the Suarez Amendment was nonsense, that the Morrison Amendment was nonsense, and the Brady Amendment was, quotes, nonsense. And they think it's yet more nonsense on stilts. That's the problem Theresa May's got. She knows probably it's completely unworkable, but equally, her desire to keep the party together means she's giving it a go. It's a compromise within the Conservative Party, where really what we should have is a united view within the government, then seeking compromise, if that's going to be necessary, with the European Union. But, you know, this is nothing new. This has been around for years. I remember in the early days of the coalition, when we were constructing cabinet committees, we had the European Affairs Committee, and we put different people from each side of the coalition on it. Uh, and I remember saying to Patrick McLaughlin on the European Affairs Committee, I think that's balanced, isn't it? And his answer was, yes, well, it is on our And now, Maddie, away from the the Malthouse compromise, Theresa May is going to go back to Brussels and say, get rid of the backstop or time limit it or give us an exit mechanism. The EU's never going to accept this, are they? Well, the the thing is, is that the EU has been really consistent in saying that they're not going to renegotiate the withdrawal agreement. The political declaration, they're happy to talk about, but not the withdrawal agreement. I mean, having said that, she hasn't formally requested that they actually talk about this yet. So I think we shouldn't completely rule it out 100% because that is a negotiating position. 
But if they are willing to talk again about this aspect, you can expect that they're going to be conditions. And one of those big issues for the EU is, will this actually get through Parliament? Because yes, she managed to pass the amendment on Tuesday with a majority of 17. But 17 isn't many isn't a big group of MPs and and remember even if you get the meaningful vote passed so the vote of approval you still got to get the implementing legislation and a nice little comparison from when we joined the EU is that the vote um, to actually in favour of joining the EU in 1971 was passed with a majority of 112. The European Communities Act at second reading was passed with a majority of eight. So you can really lose those numbers in that time and that will be, be something that the EU is concerned about. Definitely. And, uh, and do you want to come in there? Well, I, I think Maddie's made a really good point, which is that's why the ERG and the hard Brexiteers still have huge amounts of leverage. You know, there's the legislation to come, even if they somehow the PM gets a meaningful vote, even somehow gets Brussels to agree. They can still, you know, muddy the waters later down when it comes to legislation. And just to follow up on the, on the point that Alistair made about whipping, what's really struck me is how awful the government whip, whipping operation is. We've written about it, I wrote a long piece about it a few weeks ago, about the, the, the failures of that whipping operation. But what's equally striking is how good the ERG are whipping their own people, how they act as a whole. Yeah, it looked like the government were trying to divide and rule them on Monday. It looked like they were trying to peel them off, but they stuck together and they finally swung round behind it. Equally, as Alistair says, the new thing, the brand new factor, is how well whipped the Labour levers are. And they're acting as one. And I know who's behind it, but I'm not going to say publicly yet because we're going to do a story on it at some point. But it's really fascinating it's how times. tightly whipped they are, those Labour levers. And that's difficult for Jeremy Corbyn, really difficult. Um, just to go back to, to what might be happening in Brussels, um, are you worried that if the withdrawal agreement is reopened, Alistair, that we could have some problems in areas like fisheries? I know that's an issue. Well, I mean, the, the withdrawal agreement doesn't actually include fisheries. That's in the political yeah. uh, statement or whatever it was called. Declaration, Declaration yeah. that was it, that was to follow on. And, you know, from a, a constituency that represents uh, or a big part of, of Scotland's fishing industry, I rather wish it was because it would then be nailed down. It's still very much up in the air what the future arrangements for fisheries are going to be. So, you know, I, I just don't see the withdrawal agreement actually being reopened. I'm afraid I'm with Maddie in that. You know, she said already that although there's no formal position and no formal uh, pitch made to the, the, the other 27 member states yet, they've already fallen over themselves to say this just isn't going to happen. And I kind of feel that we're back in the same territory that we were in in December, when if you remember Theresa May went to the council then, and at one point it is reported was actually cut across by uh, Angela Merkel saying, well, just tell us what you want. And if you heard uh, Steve Baker, uh, sorry, not Steve Baker, Steve Barkley mm. on the Today programme the other morning asked a very simple, forward, straightforward question. Well, what is it you're proposing then? He had no answer. <laughs> That's not an accident because the sooner or as soon as he gives an answer, then that coalition that they managed to pull together on Tuesday night starts to fracture. Now, we've kind of touched on this already, but there was another hugely significant vote on Tuesday um, when Yvette Cooper's attempt to delay Brexit in order to block no deal was defeated um, with a sizable Labour rebellion. Um, Here's Labour MP Caroline Flint, who voted against the Cooper Amendment, explaining why. I do believe that it's still possible for Parliament and the government to agree a deal, but I just worry 
that this amendment and others to delay Brexit, along with the people's vote, is just sending a very strong signal out there that people want to try and stop us leaving. Now, Maddie, given the failure of this amendment and the EU's refusal so far to change the backstop, are we now heading towards a no deal? It's the, it's the age-old question. Um, I, I mean, the thing is, is that no deal, no deal is the default. So under UK and EU law, we are leaving on the 29th of March with or without a deal. Having said that, I don't think either side really want that to happen. Um, and yes, the Cooper Amendment wasn't passed on Tuesday, and that was about yeah backbenchers trying to get to a position where they could direct the government to request an extension of Article 50. But it doesn't mean that the government can't at some point make that decision themselves. Looking at, you know, we really are... up against the clock at the moment I think I calculated now even with February recess cancelled we've got 33 sitting days until the 29th of March so that's not a lot of time to do a lot of what is needed so yes there is still a the risk of no deal will never go away and the government in our view the Institute for Government has published a report today the government isn't prepared for that but things can change and the Prime Minister is going to be coming back. I think she's committed to the 14th of February if she hasn't had a meaningful vote by then. There will be a chance for backbenchers to table a similar kind of amendment. If we're closer to the 29th of March, it might get more support this time round. Or, as I say, the government might make the decision that actually they need more time, even if it is just to pass some of the necessary legislation that needs to be in place before no deal. Yeah, Paul, could MPs have another bite at this then, blocking no deal? Well, I think Maddie's right. They might not need to if the government I mean, decides to do it itself for a, what's called a so-called technical extension for a few weeks. Uh, the EU have been open to that idea. that, But it depends heavily on, on whether or not you actually get an agreement in principle or you get a new deal. Um, so it, I think the implication from the EU side has been, OK, if we can somehow hammer a deal that you can get one meaningful vote on, then we'll give you a few more weeks to press the legislation. But we need that first. And the problem is getting that first bit sorted. That's why perhaps uh, people like Yvette Cooper, the, the so-called Cooper-Bowles Amendment, might rise from the ashes like a phoenix on, on February 14th because you'll then get, okay, there's a lot of Labour leavers who don't like the idea, but you might then get people on the Tory side, and it needs people on the Tory side to actually say, look, we no deal is such a catastrophe. We can't possibly have it as a, on the agenda. And then it depends on the wording of that amendment. I mean, I think almost certainly Cooper will have to strip out this whole idea of nine-month delay and not have a date in there whatsoever in her bill. And that makes it much more palatable to some... You might peel off some of those Labour people and certainly bring on some more Tory people. But um, I wouldn't rule out some kind of parliamentary move like that. The difficulty of this week, of course, is the one thing that was passed, as well as the Brady Amendment, was the so-called Spellman Amendment... Mm which was non-binding and said, look, we don't like the idea of a no deal. Mm -hmm. The problem there is, because it's non-binding, means that you can't actually then trigger anything like a contempt motion or a humble address or anything like that because it's non-binding. The reason Labour did that over famously over the government's Brexit uh, legal advice is because it requested documents. There were some documents to see. There's nothing like that here. Let's not get carried away with the idea, though, that not everybody in the House of Commons or or that everybody in the House of Commons doesn't want a no deal. There are a significant number. I left the House of Commons on Tuesday night. I passed David Davis in a corridor, grinning from ear to ear. Now, when you see David Davis grinning from ear to ear, you know something has happened and it can't be good. (laughs) Uh, uh, There's uh, not been blood on the floor. they, they, They were happy. They felt that they had brought the no deal Brexit that one step closer. Now, this is an infinitely complex, highly nuanced situation here. So because the, uh, the, the, the Yvette Cooper Amendment didn't pass, 
the, the Prime Minister has now got this couple of weeks grace. If she comes back without having achieved anything, as seems highly likely, there will then need to be a counter-reaction or else we are into no-deal territory. And I think at that point, attention turns to the grown-ups in the Cabinet. I think you have to look to the likes of Greg Clark, Amber Rudd, Philip Hammond. They have to really step up to the plate at that point if we are to avoid no-deal. And, you know, that's not going to be something that you will see troops voting in the, the, the division lobbies on, uh, that will be a bit of raw politics round the cabinet table. But if it gets you to the point that you need to be, then if that's what it takes, then that's what will have to happen. Completely agree. There's going to be some kind of massive Checkers 3 style meeting where everyone in the cabinet is going to actually have their say. And that I think Alice is absolutely right. It's not going to be in the voting lobbies. It's going to be within the, the walls of number 10 or some other big meeting room where actually the cabinet remainers say, look, this is so catastrophic. You know it's catastrophic, Prime Minister. You've read all the papers. You know what all the civil servants are telling you. You cannot credibly countenance a no deal. And that's why she might then say, all right, okay, guys, I'll listen to you. Let's extend Article 50. Let's give ourselves a bit of breathing room. The right might go for it might get a majority for that and she will kick the can down the road but how many times can she do that? Well the, int the really interesting raw politics comes if she gets her response to that move wrong because we've all been saying for months now that you know this looks bad for Theresa May she can't last she can't last somehow or another she keeps lasting but if she lost people like Philip Hammond, Amber Rudd, Craig Clark Richard Harrington outside the cabinet, then you do have to wonder just how long she can carry on as, as Prime Minister with any credibility. Well, we seem to be talking about Richard Harrington every week on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's, he's always there when there's... Yeah, anyway. <laughs> one, of the, one of the nicest men <laughs> yeah, you will find really, in government. Okay. I've not met him, actually. Um, His seat's in danger, don't forget. Very small majority. Mm. Yeah. And Labour really, really, you know, got it in their sights. Yeah, yeah. Um, Maddie, should people like Alistair be worried by what Tuesday's votes told us is is that we you know we th we thought there was a kind of remainery majority in Parliament. Actually, is there a majority now for delivering Brexit? You know, the idea of a people's vote looked like it, it could happen. You know, and now is looking a bit more remote. And Cooper couldn't even get her amendment passed. I mean, personally, I think it's a fool's game to try and predict how the numbers are going to fall in Parliament. Um, anything could change, and I, I do think what keeps happening, in my view, is we keep getting to almost the season finale of, of a TV series, and then it's not quite the finale, <laughs> and you're waiting again for the next one. And I do think we clearly, for whatever reason, well, probably because there's still enough time in the in the eyes of quite a few MPs, haven't hit crunch point, in my view, which is why we haven't seen the numbers maybe swing one way or the other. I think just sort of on the point we've really been talking about, but the challenge for Theresa May is that to try and get the Remainers in her party to support the deal, she's got to try and convince them that no deal is the alternative. And to try and get the Brexiteers to, to support the deal, she has to convince the, them the opposite, that actually no Brexit is the risk. And that's why she's been sort of walking this tight between the two and that I think it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out of which way she ends up going because if she goes for the sort of no deal as a real risk then she'll really have to rely on some Labour MPs to get get her 
her deal through. Um, so I, I just don't really want to predict how it plays out, but I mm. think that the numbers on Tuesday show that for the moment, Conservative Party unity is clearly quite important for a lot of MPs. Yep. Um, but it also, even if it was a small majority for the Spellman Amendment against No Deal, but then there is a slim majority against No Deal in Parliament, and that numbers might join that. Um, as you say, if you have resignations from Cabinet from some of those key Remainer ministers, I mean, we'll have to wait and see. I still think we have a bit of thinking to do about exactly what Tuesday night meant. Two weeks ago, when the government lost by a margin of 230, it was pretty clear we had one job to do, and that was to defeat the government on the May deal. And you saw the way in which the Labour Party, the SNP, and one of the Tory backbench amendments were pulled at the last minute so that you were down yeah. to that single vote. It was a much more complicated picture on Tuesday night. Mm -hmm. There were lots of different amendments. The difference between Dominic Greaves' amendment and Yvette Cooper's amendment, you know, that was not that substantial, but some people voted for some, and mm -hmm. others voted for the other for a whole range of different reasons. There was not the same clarity of purpose on Tuesday night. So as a consequence, you have a picture that is less clear at the end of the day. And are you now, as you know, a senior Liberal Democrat MP, having those discussions with MPs from across the House well, about how you might stop a no deal well, or... We are constantly speaking to people of, of uh, you know, like minds in other parties, yeah. And that's been one of the sort of uh, remarkable features of this whole debate, is the way in which people from different parties have actually, however informally, um, managed to come together and, and make common cause. Um, the people that we're not going to name apparently in the Labour Party, so I'm not going to spike uh, Paul's scoop here. <laughs> I'll not tell you who's organising them. But, you know, there's a whole range of people from the hard left through to a fairly uncompromising, almost centre-right position in that group. Um, but they, they're working together on, on the whole Brexit project. Long term, or maybe even medium to long term, you know, if, if Brexit is a consequence of a political system that has failed, will one of the outcomes be a fracturing of the party system that we've had, which has been a contributory factor to that failed political system? There will be PhD theses for political scientists, uh, a galore to be had from uh, this period when we finally get through it. But please, God, let's just get through it first. <laughs> just quickly, I mean, a second referendum now looks pretty remote. I know the Lib Dems have been no, campaigning the, the, for it. I, I, I don't buy that. Um, I think it has sort of slipped a little bit from the, the focus of the debate. But as you remove each option one by one, which is essentially still the process in which Parliament is engaged, then eventually I think people will come to realise that, in fact, the people's vote is the only option that is going to get us or offer us a, the start of a process that will get us out of this. The, the vote in itself will just be the start. Um, now, the government appears to have spied an opportunity in that Labour rebellion. Um, on Tuesday night and ministers are now apparently offering MPs cash for their deprived areas to try and win backing for the Brexit deal. Here's a clip of Labour MP Anna Turley criticising the idea in the Commons this morning. I was shocked to see the front page of the Times today suggesting that members of this House would be offered bribes or sweeteners if they signed for the Prime Minister's deal, which we know will make those constituencies worse off. Worse off. And if, given this is a government that has taken £6 billion out of Northern constituencies, yeah. is it not time that they actually had a proper debate on fairer funding for the North instead yeah. of bribes and pork barrel politics? Yeah. Paul, this is pork barrel politics at its finest, isn't it? 
Well, it certainly is. Um, but of course, it, it's a subtle form of port barrel politics because it's it's a, a hint and a nod and a wink from the government that you might get some cash for former coalfield areas uh, without formally saying it. Um, similarly, on the whole idea of workers' rights, environmental rights, the government are doing actually what a government should do. Of course, you should dangle these things to get opposition MPs' votes. You know, in a hung parliament, there's nothing wrong with that. But um, and as I say, it's, it's it's more subtle for this reason because I think Jeremy Corbyn will say this is outrageous. I agree with you; it's outrageous publicly, but privately, I bet he's pretty pleased with it because privately, we all know Jeremy Corbyn's history. He is a, a Lexiteer, he's a Labour Brexiteer, and I think a lot of people around him, certainly in his top team, will do anything to avoid a second referendum. They want this the Tories to own Brexit if it's a mess, but they want to deliver Brexit for their own constituents and not be blamed for it not being passed. And so that's what's really behind all of this. And I think the talks this week between Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May, yeah, he of course he talked about customs union, etc. But I think he probably knows that that's so difficult. It would split the Tories so much that it's impossible. If we've learned one thing this week, we've learned that Theresa May is a Tory prime minister beyond everything else. Tories first and perhaps even national interest second. Um, and so I think the customs union thing is, is looking slightly iffy. Um, and that's why I can just imagine those Labour MPs who are really tightly whipped can go back to the constituents and say, yeah, all right, it, you might call us collaborators, but actually you voted for Brexit and we're trying to deliver for you. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, you know, the experience of my colleagues in government who did very well for their communities out of the, the, the being able to be part of government and, you know, a lot of road schemes and Can Alexander But at the end of the day, the voters tend to bank that sort of thing and then they return to what really matters to them. And uh, if anybody thinks that they will save their political skin just by a new hospital or a new school here and there, they're being naive. Um, Matt, we sort of touched on the customs union there, but is that not the way to a majority in the Commons, a customs union, or is it not uh, going to happen? It's a good it? question. I mean, yeah. the, the challenge, I think, for the, Theresa May, but also for us watching, is that we haven't really had that many votes on other options in the Commons. So we don't really know where the majorities lie. So last last year, famously, Theresa May delayed the, well, the government delayed the Trade Bill and Customs Bill for nearly seven months because they were worried about amendments relating to the customs union being put down. And there was eventually a vote which actually was narrowly defeated. Are we in a different position now, potentially? Um, I mean, I think so at the moment the trade bills and the laws, there's another customs union amendment being placed there. So it might be we get a chance to see a vote in the Commons again on that point. But it's really difficult to say what will actually get the numbers in the House. So I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to chicken out of that and say I don't know. <laughs> you know, I mean, Theresa May has put out her red lines and she will not move from them. She just doesn't have the political or, dare I say it, maybe even the emotional range for the big leadership gestures. And that would, that, I don't know how the, the numbers would fall any better than anybody else, but that would be a really disruptive move within the negotiation. It would be a big swashbuckling leadership uh, move. The sort of thing you could imagine David Cameron or maybe Tony Blair mm. doing, it's just not Theresa May 
Chinese. It's a big and open offer, wouldn't it be? I mean, to, yeah. to quote Cameron from 2010. And I think the, the difficulty is, I think Alistair's right, emotionally, everything, at, and, and just historically, everything you know about Theresa May means she doesn't do that kind of bold cross-party offer. You can't imagine her leading a government of national unity, for example. You just can't yeah. imagine it. But, and that's why it's a reminder this week that she is a Tory, former Tory activist, former Tory councillor. She's much more of a conservative in many ways than David Cameron ever was. Mm-hmm. And that's why I keep coming back to the, 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 the thought that actually now she's made a deal with the ERG, a, a pact with the devil, some of the Remainers in her party would say, she might follow through on it. And that's why we might be heading towards some kind of odd managed no deal. And, and, she, and woe be tied her because, you know, God knows what's going to happen as a result. But mm-hmm. she'll, she, I suspect she'll seek a delay of Article 50 just to try and keep this alive. And then if she, if she can't get it alive, then she'll hold the Tory party together and say, look, people who vote for Brexit, I'm going to have to give them some kind of Brexit. Um, Alistair, you worked with Theresa May mm. in the Cabinet. Uh, how did your experience well, of, of... Personally, actually, like? I always found her yeah. quite uh, a reasonable person to work with, but I never really had to take her on head-to-head on the big issues. Yeah, Paul says you couldn't imagine her at the head of a government of national, national unity. Absolutely true. She was difficult in government for Nick Clegg, for David Cameron and George Osborne, she was a nightmare. You know, the the the, the real uh, the, the difficulties in, in coalition, where as far as the Home Office was concerned, went across the parties. They didn't go between them, yeah. and that's just not the way she operates. And it's one of her biggest weaknesses, I'm afraid. Remember how she reacted last week? She'd just been cuffed by 230 votes. Um, I was actually watching her when Julian Smith gave her the figures and she just kind of shrugged her shoulders and she stood up and she delivered a statement as if nothing had happened. Compare that with David Cameron when he lost the vote on intervention in Libya in 2013. And he stood up and he leant on the dispatch box in that very Cameron way and he said, I get it. Uh, And it was a gesture that was absolutely right in the moment. And as a consequence, although he had just lost a vote in the House of Commons as a leader, he somehow managed to maintain his standing and, and in fact, if anything, he possibly improved it. Um, That's not something that you can teach somebody. It's all about your natural political instincts. And I just don't think Theresa May's got them. Right, Leopards okay. don't change their spots, and I think yeah. it's worth remembering that actually... Not ge- even an appeal of kitten heels. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> very well, very good. And that's the, the two things that are driving this entire process are that Jeremy Corbyn at heart wants mm-hmm. Brexit to be delivered, and Theresa May at heart wants her party to stay united. Mm-hmm. And I think those two factors, I, for the first time, I'm beginning to think actually a managed no deal might be what she tries. Okay, um, I think we've just about got time for a quiz, which this week is all about the EU. Um, it's going to be similar to last right. week. Oh, it's going to be similar to last week. I'm going to be asking each of you which significant EU event came first okay. in history. Okay. It's, we kind of did a similar thing yeah. last week. So, Alistair will be better at this than me. Which came first with bonus points for the year? Greenland leaving the EU or Portugal and Spain joining the EU? Ooh, Portugal well, and Spain, didn't they join Portugal the Portugal and Spain acceded uh, surely before... Uh, sorry, after Greenland had left. Greenland left in the 70s. 79. I think, yeah, Greenland yeah. was 70s and they were 82, 83 mm-hmm. or something. I don't know the date. Well, I think, no, I, I mean... I think Portugal and Spain were maybe later than that. Did they come maybe in around at the time of, right. the, of the single European Act about 87? Maybe you're right. Correct, you're all correct. Greenland, 
Greenland left the EU actually formally in 1985, Ooh, following, a, following a referendum. Right. Oh, that's late enough. Uh, and okay. Portugal and Spain joined in 1986. Um, oh, so quite close. Yeah. 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 Typical large. Home rule from Denmark began for Greenland in 79. Ah. Uh, yeah. Um, but then it had had a referendum and left in right. 80, left the EU in 85. Good question. Okay. Yeah. So which came first? The first direct elections to the European Parliament, or Greece joining the EU? Well, the first direct elections were 1979. Greece then acceded, I think, round about the early 1990s. Um, yeah, I plumped for 92, but certainly I'm certain that I remember, you know, time to face up, I remember I campaigned in the first direct elections <laughs> in June That's 1979. <laughs> well, I, I can't go into that. No yeah. way. But I'd, I'd love to know when Greece joined. I, th- I think it was it was it as late as the 90s. I thought it was the 80s. Maybe you're right. I don't know, but I'm, I'm going to agree with whatever Alice has said. He sounds like knows exactly what he's talking about. So. <laughs> <laughs> and like all politicians, he says it with conviction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I, absolutely. I bought it. I'm hook, line, and sinker. Well, you're, no, you're not wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the first direct elections to the European Parliament were in 1979, but Greece joined just two years later in oh, 1981. Right, okay. yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Social Democrat grouping came on top in 1979 with 113 seats. Oh. And Russell Johnson failed to win the Highlands and Islands by just about 3,500. Oh, wow. There you go. Gutted um, I was. My 14-year-old <laughs> <my> soul took <laughs> its first hit. <laughs> okay, just a final one now. Which came first? Charles de Gaulle first vetoing the UK membership of the EU or the signing of the Ankara Agreement to create a customs union between Turkey and the EU? Wow, that's oh, a good that's, question. Wow. That's really hard. Turkey. Turkey. Uh, uh, well, I mean, sign that. Uh, well, I suppose the patent in me says that de Gaulle could not have vetoed membership of the EU because that wasn't well, until the union was created. The I'm using the EU interchangeably. Let me think. Well, I mean, when was de Gaulle around? He would have finished in 1970, thereabouts, maybe. Yeah. Late 60s. Late, yeah. late 60s. Um, and a customs union between Turkey and uh, wow, that's the, a really the good community. One. I have no idea. You no have idea to think. Idea. I mean, if you think what the, the 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 economic community and the other communities that that came with it um, were like, they were pretty loose affiliations. You didn't have a single market until the Single yeah. European Act in in 1987. Um, so it's possible it could have been earlier, couldn't yeah. it? I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for, I'm gonna go curveball. I'm gonna say Turkey before De Gaulle mm-hmm. vetoed us, because it might have been really early. Might have been ages ago. Yeah, I, I'm gonna go with that, but not because I know anything about the uh, the, the Ankara Accord or whatever it was, but just because <laughs> I think I see a sneaky curveball yeah. being pitched yeah. my way here. I feel like I should do the opposite just in case it's not a curveball and <laughs> yeah, I can claim that I knew it, knew it all along. <laughs> well, Maddie, you're right. Oh. Uh, <laughs> the first time de Gaulle vetoed UK membership was in January 1963. Okay. The right. Ankara Agreement, which paved the way for a customs union with Turkey, was September 1963. Oh, so you were right, so Paul, in that it was... Longer ago than we thought, but yeah. not that long. Right. Um, de Gaulle was worried that the UK could act as a Trojan horse for US interests, among other things. How uh, wrong he was. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Right, that's all we've got time for. Uh, to finish off, let's listen to Boris Johnson clashing with Beth Rigby of Sky News. 
who says Theresa May is getting ready to ride a unicorn to Brussels to demand changes to the Brexit deal. Thanks for listening. What the Prime Minister can do now, thanks to the parliamentary decision for which I must say I, you know, I and many others have campaigned, yes. uh, what she can do now is go to Brussels, get the freedom clause just, that the UK needs. Uh, just as she rides off on her unicorn to Brussels, the reality check landed in my phone. Uh, this is from Mr Tuss spokesperson. Uh, the backstop is part of the withdrawal agreement and the withdrawal agreement is not open for renegotiation. The December European Council conclusions are very clear on this point. You lot are deluded. It's not happening. It's not happening. I mean, with greatest respect to, to Donald Tusk, it takes two to, to tango. There is a, a negotiation going on. You would expect him to say that. But believe me, the EU has every incentive to give us the deal we need. Every incentive Mrs. to allow May the UK... has spent nearly two years I... negotiating this deal and, I... and, and has had it signed off but by the one, EU27 only one. to say, oh, sorry, I've changed my mind because I can't bring my Brexiteers round. 